0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode, the 100th episode of The Possibility Podcast. As I mentioned last week, I'm inviting all of my listeners from all over the world, I think close to 60 countries now, to join in a dialogue, sharing your thoughts, comments, suggestions, and criticisms. I am devoting a Facebook group toward this event. Send me an email at melschwartz.com backslash contact and I'll be happy to get you the information on how to join the Facebook group. Now, on to today's very special episode. Hello everybody, and welcome to the Possibility Podcast. I'm your host, Mel Schwartz. I practice psychotherapy, marriage counseling, and I am the author of the book, The Possibility Principle, the companion to this podcast. I hope to be your thought provocateur, and I'll be introducing you to new ways of thinking and a new game plan for life. Hello, everyone. I'm really excited today to introduce a very distinguished scholar, a man whose work and references I've come across over the years. He's been a great influence in my thinking. So let me introduce Jorge Ferrer. Jorge was born in Barcelona, Spain. He started his doctoral research in mindfulness meditation, and he earned his PhD from the CIIS Institute in San Francisco, with which I am most familiar He's written dozens of articles and four books. The most recent is Love and Freedom, which will be the topic of our conversation today. Jorge has been a leading scholar in participatory theory, transpersonal psychology, spiritual transcendence. I see Jorge as a beautiful integration of intellect and soul, which is what has attracted me to his work. And I am really excited to have him join us today in the Possibility Podcast. Welcome, Jorge.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you so much, Mel. And it's a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to be speaking with you as I'm becoming familiar with your work. And I see so many points of convergence and resonances. So I'm delighted. I'm I'm in your hands.
0: That's a precious place to be. In my hands, I'll do my best. Um, Let's dive into your new book, Love and Freedom. I'm going to ask you to, you know, explain or describe some of the terms. You will do them better than I am. Um, But your book, it has so many different pieces of fabric and texture to it. You're exploring both the difference between monogamy and polyamory with many terms in between. And you're looking at trying to overcome or transcend the need to create compartments. Are you this or are you that? So there is more of a non-binary approach. And of course, there's a deep dive into the heart and soul and the guts of all of this. And let's just jump in. Can you share with our listeners the terminologies? We all know what monogamy is people have a sense of polyamory, dive into a bit and give the listener the flavor of what you're looking at.
1: Okay, excellent. Thank you. So monogamy, everybody knows what it is. It involves normally like a sexual and romantic exclusivity to one partner. uh, And uh, it has been the predominant paradigm like uh, here in the West and in many other places in the world for more than centuries, for millennia. In many ways, there's a history there. Of course, like monogamy today is not a traditional monogamy anymore. Uh, it's what the prevalent paradigm has shifted from until life, until death pull us apart to what is now called serial monogamy, in which people change monogamous partners every few years with uh, periods in between of exploration. So um, that's monogamy in, in a nutshell. And then polyamory has been a paradigm emerging in the last decades that uh, basically so in a way I see it as a response to to the amount of like uh, uh, adultery cheating infidelities that has happened uh, historically uh, in uh, monogamous arrangements. Uh, there was this author saying the history of monogamy is the history of adultery. <laughs> and it's probably uh, somewhat true. So the idea is like uh, people would like uh, consensually um, decide that, that uh, they want to open the relationship or, but, uh, the, the key definition is like monogamy, polyamory, when you are like in a simultaneous relationship with more than one person, could be affectionate, could be sexual, could be both, could be romantic with the knowledge and consent of, uh, everybody, uh, your partner, if you have a partner and, uh, their partners, if they have a partner, no? The thing is like, um, for me personally, and this is where, um, a bit of my personal story comes in, like, and I don't I don't want to go, in lengths, but uh, I experienced long periods in my life of both polyamory and monogamy, like uh, almost two decades of each. And at some point I felt like uh, uh you know I could live both relational styles without serious fears or conflicts. And I was kind of like had a sense of freedom, you know, to be able to, and uh, and most importantly, I couldn't identify myself. People would ask me, Are you monogamous or polyamorous? And I say, well neither uh, it really depends on the, um, my life moment the developmental pools the people i'm in connection with and uh, many other factors you know so i start kind of like coming across with uh many different ways in with contemporary people are transcending that binary of monogamy and polyamory and uh, i call that uh novogamy uh novo new again, union like a. Uh, I don't like new terms in general because they looks like you're presenting like a new canon, like a new kid in town, you know, that is superior to the others. But I don't feel that way. I feel it's like in the same way that transracial people are not better or worse than be Asian or African-American or transgender people are not better or worse than male or female. Being nobogamos is not better or worse. It depends on how you lead that with how much mindfulness, integrity and honesty and so forth. So that's a little of the terminology.
0: So when you're asked that question, are you monogamous or polyamorous? I've tried to train my mind to not think in terms of either or false compartments. So when I'm asked an either or question kind of quizzically or as a wise guy, my answer is yes, confounding the person asking the question. Are you this or are you that? My answer is yes, right? Because I'm resisting falling into these Constructs that we made up, of course, they're evolutionary, they're real, but we made them up, culture made them up, society made them up. So what you're sharing here is your desire and your resistance to be compartmentalized and to move more into the flow of I experience relationship the way I choose to experience it at the time I choose to experience it.
1: Exactly. And uh, as you pointed out, and you put on your books, you know, this kind of either or thinking, this um, black or white thinking is very really entrenched in our culture. And also, some people would say even in the human mind, the, the, the way that categorizes reality, but uh, it's problematic. It's problematic because life is not uh, black or white. Life is multicolor. I'm here sitting, I'm seeing a lot of shades of green right now and many different colors you know. So the problem is when you get into this kind of like identification with categories almost immediately as some like Derrida and other postmodern thinkers pointed out, hierarchies are starting to occur. So that's something of what I denounce in the book. Like, uh, monogamists tend to look down at, as poly people as like, you know, like they are like sexual, greedy, and like they are superficial, and they, they are not, they, they are fear of commitment, and, and a lot of things, you know. But polyamorous also, they look down at monogamous people, like saying, well, <clears throat> they're hypocritical because they actually want to have more lovers, but, but actually they, they cheat, you know, when they do it, and, uh, or, or they're afraid of like uh, connecting to the free and non-possessive essence of love. There is all sort of like, a uh, moral, psychological, even spiritual judgments. And I find that conversation, uh, pointless. Uh, it's not, it's ideological. It's not evidence-based. And, uh, part of my book is trying to stop what I call the monopoly wars and like to really try to open up into a, wider uh, spectrum of uh, socially legitimate relational options that each person like can really craft a relationship and that can change on time. Maybe I'll end my days in a poly family, or maybe I'll end my days in a monogamous container. Uh, who cares? It depends on what is truth for you and the people you're relating to.
0: My thought at this moment is to dive into, for the purpose of listeners who have not read your book, the 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 guts and the, the actual substance of monogamy versus polyamory, and I shouldn't say versus, but at the same time I just wanted to comment that when you're talking about that either or a resistance to we experience that in all aspects of our lives, right? Beliefs, you know, what we confuse with being the truth, the argumentation this is better, that's better really is it we'd be so much better served to simply say it's my belief because okay. saying it's my belief doesn't open us up to conflict. You have a belief. I have a belief. It's okay if we have differing beliefs, but when we break down into the warfare like in the U S what's going on in this country, politically diametrically opposed beliefs about life, consciousness, yes. freedom. What does freedom mean? No different than, Monogamy versus polyamory, different beliefs. If we can come to deactivate the, the hostility and say, I have a different belief than you, that's all. It's opposed exactly. to you're wrong and I'm right. But let's move into, into the core of it a bit, Jorge, monogamy. So monogamy is the commitment we make to one another to spend our rest of our lives together in fidelity and in intimacy, emotional intimacy, sexual intimacy. The first book I wrote was called The Art of Intimacy, The Pleasure of Passion. Mm -hmm. And it began like this. The fact that half of marriages end in divorce, not the problem. The real problem, the majority of intact marriages after a period of time are no longer in love Eros is declined. If marriage were a corporation, it would be bankrupt. We wouldn't Mm -hmm. permit that failure in business. Why do we permit it in our lives? But my thesis is that those results are not necessarily inevitable. It's Mm -hmm. that we are uneducated and illiterate in emotional Mm -hmm. intimacy and our own self-actualization. You take two people who know so little of themselves and bring them together Isn't that relationship destined or inclined to wither and not succeed? So at the heart of monogamy, before we jump to, well, monogamy leads to infidelity, it leads to boredom, it leads to loss of passion, undoubtedly. But my first question is, must it be that way, do you think? Is the problem in the form of monogamy, but as well, isn't it in the lack of spiritual awareness evolutionary awareness consciousness in the two individual people who truly don't know of themselves or each other so i love your thoughts on
1: that in my experience like the couples uh, monogamous couples that have seen them like thriving for many years and being actually together until they die or in an early age for so many years um, in many cases there was like that kind of like a Commitment to growth, commitment to uh, some kind of like a spiritual sense too, like uh, that can take many different forms, you know. And at the same time, like um, uh, even those couples are with, you know, there's always exceptions we cannot generalize, but I would say it's safe to generalize that those couples were exceptions, the ones that would say, yes, and we kept sexual passion, like super high from the beginning to the end. That's extremely rare. Uh, Because, as you know, there is this phenomenon called sexual habituation. That is one of the Achilles heel of monogamous arrangements, you know. Normally, it starts kicking in after even weeks, months, after regular sexual activity with the same partner, right? Um, But uh, especially after three years, uh, the so-called three years each, it becomes kind of unbearable for most couples, you know. So those couples that have like achieved like a level of like a spiritual union, like a companionship, like a companionate love, is called you know. Uh, very often they have done that sacrificing the transcendent powers, the regenerative powers of sexual passion. So that's all. Question. My question is: This necessarily so? Is this necessarily so? So um, in terms of sexual habituation, the you know the two strategies i have seen like you know, more successful, um, minimizing sexual habituation. Uh, one has been one that connects already with this kind of like more transbinary relationships, like in the sense that uh, uh, there has been some studies on post-patriarchal couples, you know, who are happy together, but ultimately they are pseudo-happy because the sexuality is not what it used to be. So many, there is an increasing number of those couples, they are called today monogamish. Are really connected, they are really together, they are committed to each other. And at the same time, they can give each other sometimes free passes when traveling, when going to conferences, when going to festivals, you know. And mm-hmm. that it seems that for many couples, it helps them to rekindle also the sexual passion because people, you know, with the diversity of their energies, they get reinvigorated and then they bring this to their homes, you know. Or of course, it's delicate and both people need to be have spaciousness enough to go there and and so forth. But the other way of also exploring, I've experimenting in my own life uh, is also the practice of like a sex without orgasm. Because when you start practicing sexuality without an orgasm, the, um, the the libido stays up and actually like orgasm is something like a device by Mother Nature for procreation. When you do that for a regular time with the same partner, the subliminal message that's coming to, from the reptilian brain uh, to our cortical cortex saying, like, ah, this person is not interesting anymore. And people just start looking at other persons and so forth. When you cut organs out of the picture, you know, and there is like studies that you have are familiar with the work. Uh, there's a beautiful book called Cupid's Poison Arrow. Uh, by nice. this couple this speaking about this and many phenomenological styles of many couples practicing this and things can change, you know, like uh, they, they they reconnect and I <clears throat> I have like advised this sometimes to some of my clients with some good effects, you know. Um there are in a way like uh patches, so to speak, on sexual habituation. It never fully really solves the the deep thing. Uh is it Solvable. Um, I don't think so. I know people go to Tantra and they go into King, they watch porn together. There are many things that people do, but there is something that is biologically almost inevitable in that decreasing of sexual passion that, of course, for some people they compensate in other ways, you know, through emotional intimacy and spiritual intimacy. And uh, uh, so that's also valuable as well.
0: So I'd like to introduce the the concept of uncertainty into this conversation. I often quote Oscar Wilde, who wrote, "Uncertainty is the essence of romance," and we can all instinctively understand that and agree with that. But then the romance fades, the passion fades, and the eros fades. But my thinking there is, does that necessarily have to be? Because more primarily, the uncertainty fades, and the the romantic, passionate relationship defaults to predictability. Now, predictability must be the death knell of eros and passion. So I just wonder, I look at the form and the content, the form, monogamy, and the things we know to be true. And then I also consider the content, which is what are the influences, perhaps, um, habitually, sociologically, psychologically, to create these outcomes? When we first meet and fall in love, there's a sense of tremendous curiosity and wonder, I don't know this person. We're not completing each other's sentences. So sometimes, whether I'm working with a couple or I'm sitting with friends and I listen to them talking and I hear the conversation and I think, I don't know if they're actually speaking about the same thing because they don't ask questions like, so what do you mean by that word? I want to make sure that word means the same thing to you as me. You see, there's this shortcut, the abbreviating of the communication, the predictability. And with that, the loss of being present. Now, when we're not present, what happens to passion, to errors? So, you know, I'm looking at this through many different facets, because what you're saying is inarguably accurate. But then I come to, could it be different? Could a monogamous relationship not go down that narrow path? Now, thus far, that takes exceptional people. But if we change, if we became more educated, and what it requires for a relationship to continue to thrive. I go to a wedding and I listen to marriage vows of young couples. And I think to myself, Mm. <laughs> good, good luck with that Good luck. right because th- there's a naivete but yeah. I, perhaps I'm an optimist and I feel that <laughs> it needn't be that way yeah. if we learned what we needed to learn to begin mm-hmm. with your thoughts yeah. on that
1: yeah I, I'm an optimist too uh, by nature uh, like you and um, and also a realist <laughs> a realist optimist uh, and uh my sense is that uh, the key here is uh, part of what we were talking before, that is like the, uh, that the two people in a monogamous arrangement uh, they need to be really open and committed to a growth, to transformation, yes. and that's like a life journey. When you're committed to growth and transformation, uh, you start seeing not only your partner but yourself as a mystery. Okay, it's a mystery. You uh and it takes a lot because when you are cohabitating and you, the patterns, the routines it takes tremendous effort and that's why it's so important for couples who cohabitate and live together to do many things different outside routines, very important, like traveling, or we even live some time apart, you know, and then come back, you know, or don't sleep in the same bed, you know, to, you know, there are many things that people can do, you know, in that regard, you know, but the important is to really cultivate that sense of like uh, every human being is like, as you wrote in your book, it's a dynamic possibilities, range of possibilities, and, uh, and we are too. And the more we acknowledge ourselves to be that kind of like a, dynamic uh unfolding of this kind of creative mystery through us you know that is cosmos life the divine mystery whatever you want to call it then the, i think the possibilities of falling into this kind of like more boxing ourselves or boxing others uh they diminish still um there will be challenged but i think there is much more greater chances for for harmonious and exciting relationships.
0: the emerging worldview uh, which we can call transpersonal. Uh, we can call it participatory. Different people have different works for it. But that emerging worldview, which my listeners are familiar with, isn't that fundamental to how we can potentially experience ourselves and the other in a relationship? Whether it's monogamous, whether it's polyamorous, whether it's blend and transbinary, doesn't it require the foothold of a shifting worldview of what it means to be a conscious human being.
1: Yes. I think it's an important element <clears throat> because for me, uh, when they asked me about what do I understand by a participation, you know, uh, I explained it like participation for me is, is co-creation at so many different levels at the levels of cognition to understand that we're co-creating our reality and, uh, you know, perceptually, cognitively, you know, like, uh, but also at, um, you know, co-creation of, all the parts of who we are, you know, Uh, we are normal in our minds. That's part of the problem, you know, like uh, but our our knowledge of our hearts, the knowledge of our instinctive wisdom of the vital energy, the knowledge of the body, you know, when we allow all this to co-create our lives, things can become a bit more messy, but also more dynamic and more creative, you know, because the creative energy of life comes through our own vital energy. There is, of course, mental creativity, the smart permutation of ideas but genuine creativity is that the kind of energy that can create another human life right and can be used to regenerate ourselves and our relationships you know and the last one is like this kind of co-creation and this is of course only for people who have like a spiritual disposition with the creative mystery but not necessarily so, because um I'm amazed today at the amount of like a cosmologists and scientists who embrace a mystical secular vision of the cosmos, you know. My friend Brian Swim at, at CIS, and there are so many people every year, uh, these new books on cosmology come out like saying, like, you know, we don't believe in, in creation or God, but the cosmos itself, the story of the cosmos, is like a mystical event. It it produces awe and reverence. And we are part of that, you know, we're part of that unfolding. So that in itself is like a like an amazing thing, regardless of your spiritual or secular worldview.
0: I I think that speaks to the heart of the matter in the shifting worldview. What you're referring to, and we all have different language for it. People will ask me at times um, my beliefs about a deity or a God. And my response is, no, I don't believe that in any way. Oh, you're an atheist. No. <laughs> I, I I believe that the universe is inseparable. Reality is inseparable. And that there is a conscious intelligence that is profound to be our words. And we are a fundamental part of it. And therefore, when we then come to relationship, the possibility in f- quantum physics, we can call it the state of superposition, all possibilities are in this moment. What word do I choose in that moment? What physical affection or a lack of do I choose in that moment in a relationship? When do I choose silence? When do I choose to intervene? Those possibilities are infinite, moment in and moment down. And when you speak of co-creating in a relationship, that's the conscious co-creating. In that relationship, and of course, I think that we are in our infancy. I think that we are in elementary school in terms of this awareness and what happens in relationship. So when we make conclusive statements about people are, it's human nature, it's how relationships is. I I don't accept that because we haven't even scratched the surface yet of understanding. What awaits us when we learn to get out of our own way, what we were taught misleads us. Mm-hmm. We need mm-hmm. to rethink, which is why your work is so fundamentally important in sharing this shifting worldview toward consciousness and awakening and the transpersonal and spiritual. All those words mean different things to each of us.
1: <laughs> but, I,
0: but I think they evoke a similar feeling, don't they?
1: I think so. I think so. I think it's like, uh, I had to say it's like a sense of like, uh, you know, we are greater, um, uh, than what we have been told, you know, from day one in a school, you know, like this kind of, um, being that is going to, is born, is going to die. And, um, and then the, the best we can do with our time is to try to accumulate good experiences because this is it, you know, and, uh, and, uh, go for it and compete and get better and get more money. I mean, that's part of it, simplified, of course, the mentally. But whenever you enlarge that worldview, like uh, the game expands in a way that uh, it's much less self centered in yourself. And uh, I love also, like, uh, you know, this you know, the Dalai Lama when he says, uh, you know, the problem is that people are not selfish, is that they're not selfish in an intelligent way. Because if you realize that when people around you are happy, you are happy, then you are at the service of people's happiness and joy and well being, you know? Yes. And uh, that's like, a is the best in, in our world, it's like that, right? So I think that's part of the shift, you know, the shift of, uh, but moving also connected to both spiritual and relational um, realms. Like uh, this is part of what my book is also trying to deconstruct, what I call relational narcissism, you know, in which many people get entrenched in their positions. Like uh, monogamy is the best, not just for me because it works, or I think it works, I want it to work, but it's it's best, most natural, more healthy, more spiritual for everybody. Or vice versa, polyamory is best for that. And it reminds uh, those of us who have studied the history of religion, and, uh, and it's the same, like the religious wars, you know, like all the religious competing, you know, like saying our God or our ultimate is the true one or the superior one, the rest are inferior or false. So it's this kind of a spiritual narcissism now, like a manifesting relational narcissism. So um, I think that's part of the work, you know, like to to really uh, like get this kind of like, um, you know, gross and subtle levels of narcissism that we all have. Uh, you know, we all have that uh, because this a human tendency that is natural that to believe that what really has worked so well for us, it should work well work for others. And that's okay, and uh, I can share it with others, but also like with the openness to hear that other people could become completely different. And that's fundamental in our culture at all levels, political, spiritual, relational, and so forth.
0: I'd love to show you my appreciation for your subscribing to and rating this podcast by offering you a gift to one of the following, The Power of Mind, a live talk that I gave. Or one of my digital ebooks, Creating Authentic Self Esteem, Overcoming Anxiety, or Raising Resilient Children, and lastly, Cultivating Resilient Relationships. Once you have subscribed, please send an email to mel at melschwartz.com and just let me know which gift you'd prefer. Thanks. So, so in, in listening to you say that, um, that, that makes perfect sense. Where my thought takes me as you're saying that is toward how can I thrive as a conscious human being? And how, what is necessary for me to thrive in my relationship? Whether the relationship is monogamous or polyamorous or somewhere in between. So I, I come to the word autonomy, which I've seen you used in your book a number of times. And I think. Okay, how can we describe what we mean by autonomy? Autonomy Mm -hmm. is a healthy sense of self, Mm -hmm. which should be an individual prepared to engage in and thrive well in a relationship. You you Mm -hmm. agree with that general description then is your belief that monogamy um, impinges on autonomy and clearly on some levels that's self evident, and that polyamory enables a better sense of autonomy. Can you speak to that, please?
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like, uh, I would say more than autonomy, I would speak about autonomy in connection as being kind of this kind of uh, ideal that we strive for, especially in as we relate to other human beings. Um, I would say that uh, I don't think it's the paradigm itself, um, it's the pred- pred- prevalent historical form that Morogamy has taken, especially, and this is super important, we're speaking uh, in a world, in a culture in which we're only a few decades of getting free from patriarchal thinking and patriarchal structures, Mm -hmm. you know. So, of course, it has imprinted, especially in women's autonomy uh, Mm -hmm. for centuries and millennia, to levels that were, like, uh, very challenging uh, for women, uh, because men still would, have their own autonomy they would still go outside they would do their thing you know they would cheat they would have the burdello you know they that was kind of normal my when i talk with my grandmother about these things you know my grandmother would tell me yeah i think your grandfather uh, was with other women but that's what men do you know that that (laughs) wasn't normal you know that's what men would do Uh, and women were at home with the kids and all that you know so the time has changed, I think, for better in that way. And we, as you say, we're all giving baby steps in trying to figure out what's the new situation or how to relate, you know. I don't think monogamy per se, you know, that's why in my book I talk about there's like a, both mindful ways to be monogamous or polyamorous and also less mindful ways, you know. I see people in polyamorous structures who are also kind of like uh, being super narcissistic, like many men, they have many lovers. For for many men, sometimes polyamory has become a rhetoric to Mm. do what men have always wanted to do. But hard enough women that they kind of control as well, you know, because sometimes they have issues if they go with other women, you know. And then uh, then it's the same um, patriarchal, you know, hegemonic thinking applied to polyamory, what is a distortion, of course, you know. Polyamory and monogamy at their best, you know, support the full autonomy in connection of uh, both partners. It could be said, and this is the poly critique, that monogamy, because of their emphasis on sexual exclusivity, there is like a potential loss of that kind of autonomy about what uh, people wa- uh, want to do or, or not do with their bodies. Okay. Especially for women uh, uh, who have been like so controlled sexually, that's why so many women are at the you know uh, many of the pioneers and uh, of the poly movement are women. You know, uh, poly activists are women because of the situation. You know that they, they realize that uh, that there is like an emancipatory, liberatory power for them. But again, like for me, I'm not trying to say one relationship is better than the other, depending on how you experience it and maybe some some styles of relationships could be better off than others in certain things, but not as a whole.
0: Furthering that conversation around autonomy, I'd like to include the concept of emotional intimacy. Yes. Now, to me, emotional intimacy is not simply around the area of in either relationship or in any blended relationship. Emotional intimacy is not, Simply, do I have secrets with other people, which is can be an emotional infidelity, um, unless we're in a polyamorous relationship. But the, the greater issue here around emotional intimacy for me is I'm um, fully transparent in sharing my thoughts and feelings with my partner through my work as a couples therapist and as a psychotherapist. I'm astounded by how much remains obscured and not shared because of the concern of reactions, control issues, and that issue around authentic emotional intimacy, um, I think, would impact any relationship. Or do you believe that the opportunity, every relationship presents challenges and opportunity for growth? We We both know that. We can argue that monogamy presents a greater opportunity for challenge and growth because you're sticking with it. When things get hot and uncomfortable, you're not taking off in the next relationship. But that may be just glib and, and, and short-sighted to take that approach. But I'm interested in your point of view around both personal growth through the vehicle of the relationship. And the issue around emotional intimacy, which is part of our personal growth.
1: one, one thing yes before uh, addressing something you say uh, about polyamory, like uh, well, uh, that's same work, I'm going to the next person. but that's what's happening today with serial monogamy. <laughs> serial monogamy, that's what happens uh, in that paradigm, no. and uh, And I know many poly couples who have been together for many, many years, there's some studies of l- longevity of relationships in which like, longevity is pretty much the same with contemporary monogamous and polyamorous couples, you know. Some papillus stick with the client, stick with their couples with challenges, you know, but the challenges could be different. I think in terms of emotional intimacy, um, this is the interesting thing here, because I believe um, that uh, not all, but many of the reasons of the, of the, the kind of like uh, secrets or Things that monogamous people keep private very often are around about attraction to other people, Mm -hmm. desire for other people because they feel that uh, I will be harmful for their partners or they feel that they don't want to open that kind of worms. And then they feel that I don't want to hear the same from my partner and so forth. So that's a dimension that in honest polyamorous arrangements. it's kind of part of the game. There is this kind of more transparent communication about attractions and desires. So, in that way, in that particular area, I would say that the structure of polyamory, when well navigated, it can offer in that arena a deeper level, facilitate more te- of emotional transparency and intimacy. That being said, I also remember like a, one of my favorite psychotherapists I work with as a client, you know, like a I was struggling with some of these questions about what to share, what not to share uh, with my partner. Uh, Do I need to share everything uh, that comes to my heart and my mind? And the guy was a very wise man. He told me like, no, 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 no. Uh, I think there is certain things, of course, that are important. That's important to share. But it's also important to respect the dignity of your own privacy. Uh, To be in a relationship, uh, it doesn't mean you have to share everything that comes through you that could be even harmful that could be stupid you know that could be silly uh that you can create kind of like a unnecessary problems that uh and so forth you know so it's, it's something interesting like uh it's a very gray area no what yeah i, I suppose <laughs> it prompts
0: it prompts the reflection is this important to share is yes. this necessary to share and it would it be Harmful not to share. How right. would I feel if I were in my partner's shoes? Exactly. If this wasn't shared, how would I feel? Right. That's yes. the this, 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 this best we can do yes. with it,
1: yes. isn't it? Yeah, for, for me, also, like a, a question I ask myself in these situations is like, uh, is this privacy um, kind of fear based or is it based on respect or personal dignity or? Um, you know, and, and I also try to navigate this. Am I afraid of something? You know, uh, and then I normally, when, it's like that, then I work towards sharing, you know, but there could be, there could be many other reasons why someone wants to keep something private for yourself. For the time being, this is also a time to share things. Maybe it's not the time. Maybe your partner is being challenged at work or uh, even a health. A psychological health problem you know there's many contextual factors you know that uh that uh you know skillful means is something i really love about buddhist tradition you know uh skillful means is like you know the the appropriateness of every action according to the context and the impact of your actions on the other people you know sometimes the 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 ideology of radical honesty um i say ideology because it can become an ideology I'm very transparent myself. I like honesty. It's very important for me. But, like everything, it can become like an ideology and it can become almost non compassionate and cruel in certain contexts.
0: Yes. It's an art form to be cultivated as opposed to a rule book or an operating manual, right? It's not one size fits all. It's more art, it's more music. The relationship ultimately, We should be seeking to be in concert with each other. Think about an orchestra. Individual instruments playing. Each musician playing their own instrument. There's autonomy, my instrument. But we're operating in harmony, in concert, which is really the worldview that we're talking about, isn't it? We maintain our sense of self. People struggle with this when I speak about inseparability or oneness. You know, it's, oh, so I have no more identity. No, you have meaning and purpose now because what you do and what you don't do impacts everything. So this provides meaning and purpose. So in relationship, I see it as the balance between self, playing your own instrument, but realizing that you're part of the ensemble. You're in concert. And the goal is harmony, ultimately. We may yes. not love each other we may not like each other but we don't have to fall into disharmony right
1: exactly um, uh, exactly
0: is, could you speak because this piece in your book I, I i find fascinating you you speak of course about jealousy and you use a word that i had not come across before compersion um and can you share with the listeners the issue around getting past jealousy, the Buddhist approach to getting past jealousy, and what compersion is.
1: Sure. Um, well, it's interesting to note like in the English and Spanish and most dictionaries, there is no antonym, there is no opposite feeling uh, name for jealousy. So, compersion is a term that was coined like a, a poly. Amorist community in San Francisco many years ago and I described the opposite feeling of jealousy and with jealousy we feel a heart contraction normally accompanied with fear normally a feel of abandonment but also it can also face challenges for our sense of like uh, security and like self-esteem and also in the worst situations that uh, brings like anger and violence. And uh, that's also why it's so impar- important to transform jealousy, regardless of your relational style, because it leads to tremendous violence and even murders today. You know, a lot of a lot of butting of women in our world is, is caused by jealous feelings. You know, so um, there are many books in the um, in the poly literature talking about compassion, but. Uh, but there is no method to cultivate it. So I was like almost 15 years uh, studying Buddhism in the Buddhist tradition. And then and then these practices, you know, uh, of like an empathic joy um, that uh, it's like to really like uh, to desire a well-being not only for yourself, also for your partner, for people you love. But in, in Tibetan Buddhism, in the Buddhist tradition, you desire that well-being also for your so-called enemies quotation marks you know like uh, the dalai lama would practice this would encourage monks to practice this with the chinese after they invaded tibet and they did all these atrocities imagine right yes. so uh, i've been experimenting with this with clients you know and within myself and my own experience like to when i had like some hard contraction about i would like uh, uh in my polytimes, times so my partner being with someone else to really practice this like to really well-being not only for my partner and my partnering with this person but also for this person that is a person like me who suffers who has joy you know and like uh and this kind of like uh, i think this it does something to the the psyche because the, the 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 egocentric psyche you know that the mind that's very kind of like you know under the grips of this kind of egocentric i me mind is always trying to separate my my joy, my pleasure from others. So when you do this practice, there is something that kind of like uh dissolves, the construct that egocentric foundation of the way we function, and there are more spaciousness, uh, um uh spaciousness that takes place not only in the mind but in the heart that is so important uh. and of course uh there is uh, different challenges now for different people you know when you have like biographies who you know you know parents who are jealousy or jealousy with rivals or you had traumatic experiences it's much harder because those early biographical experiences they open you up to transgenerational factors to collective factors that we all carry inside you know so sometimes the there is other practices that uh that i do more more embodied uh, with couples but i think we'll take too much time to explain them here but uh I found them also very effective. Uh, So there are ways to transform jealousy. So
0: as you're describing that, personally, what I envision is the intention to release my psyche, my ego, my sense of ownership, the my, my partner, my wife, my spouse, to release the my and set the intention of. If I love the other as I say I do, then envision releasing me and my, and just embracing my love for them and wanting them to feel love and gratification and pleasure, not just with me. I, I'm, as you're seeing it, I'm doing a visualization for myself, which I've never done before. Mm-hmm. And I'm fi- I'm finding it accessible. Not that it's immediate to reach <laughs> it, but I can begin to picture what it might look like. It's a vehicle,
1: exactly. Yes, exactly. It's a practice. It's a, cultiva- it's a cultivation of the the open heart. You know, like, a, and I would say, like, even um, I think you you one can tap into. Um, I don't want to say deeper, but like uh, less constricted forms of love in the sense like, you know, I love this this Argentinian philosopher, Argentinian psychologist Jorge Bucay, You probably don't know him because I,
0: I've, many... I think I've come across
1: the name. Oh, yes. the Spanish, you know, he he gave this definition of love I always really enjoyed. He's like like genuine love uh, is like to to love so much the other person, uh, that um that if, if what is good for this person is to move away from you. You will support that with all your heart because your priority is their happiness, not your happiness. That's genuine love. And of course, uh I think in our culture and society, and I think you know monogamous structures, traditional ones have and patriarchal structures have fomented that, you know, like love is also very intertwined well with a sense of possession. A sense of possession, you know. And that's tricky because I think like possession, uh, for me, makes sense on an instinctive, primordial level, in the sexual level, to possess, being possessed are the course of the instinctive world, you know. But they don't need to crystallize emotionally or socially. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I possess the, this person as my possession. <laughs>
0: the, the, the description of... Allowing yourself to feel love with the other moving away from you, of course, is not altogether an unusual experience for a parent.
1: Exactly,
0: <laughs> you, know, you you realize that for the individuation of your child, they must move away from you and become autonomous, and it would be unhealthy to say, "No, no, no, come back here." So, it's phenomenologically, it's it's not different than what a parent may feel for a child as they move toward young adulthood. And it's almost conceptually similar to think of that in terms of your lover, which would incline toward the polyamory, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yes. I I can see that as a vehicle. So for all of what we are talking about, there there needs to be the individual growth, doesn't it, and move away from the toxic individualism, whether it's monogamy or polyamory or transbinary. We must move past that unhealthy, toxic individualism, which is based in fear.
1: Exactly. And
0: rooted in the Newtonian paradigm of separation.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Right? <laughs> so for me, Jorge, it, it, the principle of separation, the mechanistic worldview, to me, lies at the heart of fear, mm-hmm. competing rather than collaborating, the loss mm-hmm. of empathy. And the emerging paradigm we're talking about of oneness leads mm-hmm. ultimately to empathy and compassion and the unfolding of our emergence as a in relationship or individually. Yes. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm I'm in agreement with the importance of not defaulting to a category in terms of monogamy, polyamory. Categories are made-up things. Mm. Our mind made them up. You know, um, Alfred North Whitehead called that reification. Our mind yes. makes something up, then if it gets it made it up. We Absolutely. reify them. We we take our thoughts. And we turn it into a thing and the truth. And that leads to the toxic individualism.
1: Yes. And we identify ourselves with those categories. And then that leads to the competition, like to def- the, the position of defending ourselves, our relationship style, if I've chosen, therefore must be best or superior. And uh, things are changing, you know, like more and more people, of course, they will develop empathy, develop like, a, you know, like a more spaciousness in their minds, you know, like they realized I mean, if you talk intellectual with people, most people would agree with you. Like, well, what is good for you, not necessarily should be good for everybody. And they will tell you, sure, you know. But it's still, when this type of conversation comes, uh, the judgments uh, emerge. You know, like the same with the spiritual and religious matters. Very often, like, uh, no, because uh, God, no, no, it, that's nihilistic, or uh, no, that's like that's like primitive or whatever, no. So it's um, it's very sad. A sad situation that I think people like like us, with our different uh, approaches, you know, to the same participatory worldview, you know, and uh, coming from different places, but we're really trying to make the shift, you know, in relationships, in the way we live so especially in the way we relate to each other. No, that's like the basis, the basic foundation of humankind, how we relate to each other. No, uh, that's the basic.
0: To that end, at times, in my own provocative way. I might say, I'm not a human being. I choose to be a human becoming, which, <laughs> is, which is to be unstopped. Why do I want to be a being? I want to be becoming, we, to be in flow, which is, you know, it's easy these days. People talk about being in flow, but what does this mean to be in flow? Or people struggle with the question, who am I? And I say, that's yes, wrong question. Who am I would have a fixed answer. How do I choose to become? How do I choose Mm -hmm. to experience my life? Everything you're speaking about requires an unfolding sense of becoming, letting go Mm -hmm. of certainty, letting go of right and wrong, Mm -hmm. no matter what form of relationship you choose. Well, this has been stimulating and fascinating. Uh, Before we close, um, I want to tell you I'm going to be doing an entire series of, of episodes on relationships perhaps That's we'd great. like to invite you back on. Can you tell the listeners how to learn more about your work and to access your book?
1: Amazon.com. <laughs> oh,
0: okay. So for everyone to hear again, and by the way, this will all be in the notes of the podcast. The book is love and freedom. And you practice as a psychologist, Jorge? Yes.
1: Yes. Uh, I'm, I practice as practice psychologist. Like I specialize in, um, most of my clients are individuals or couples dealing with relationship issues, like sometimes it's jealousy, infidelity, sexual incompatibilities, uh, one of the two partners wants to open the relationship, the other is not. Things like this, you know, the crafting of uh, a relationship style that really works and is a creation, a co-creation for them, you know. And then I also have another side that is more like transpersonal, psycho-spiritual counseling. But I would say like ninety uh, percent of my clients are on on the relational. Field And interestingly, many couples, most of the couples I've seen is the women, is the females who are trying to open the relationship. Interesting. Fascinating fascinating phenomenon.
0: Certainly. But I will also say in general, in therapy, most people seeking therapy are females.
1: Yes, of course. Well, they're, more emo- they're in general more emotionally intelligent than male, uh, talking about the critical mass, and yes. they have the, the instinct to process emotions, and, uh, you know, it's like a more ingrained in many different ways, you know. But um, but at the same time, also, there is a thing, I think there is like the thing of patriarchy we were talking before, you know, that more and more women are becoming less tolerant, you know. Yes. For a man, to tell them what they do or not, they cannot do with their sexuality or their bodies, you know. So um, that's very, we're going to see more and more of that.
0: It is a shifting of of old archetypes there. So la- last question, um, do you work with couples and individuals by Zoom or only in person?
1: Uh, um, only by Zoom. I only work in person here where I live uh, in Ibiza. Uh, sometimes when we do like more embodied work and then I work with uh, another therapist who do the physical work and I kind of like support in there as a witness consciousness, I facilitated that work, but um, there's international, so it's by Zoom.
0: So if one wants to reach you, do you uh, you have a website or how, yes. does it, how do people contact you?
1: Yeah, website is uh, JorgeNFerrer.com.
0: Okay, and again, to, to the listeners, that will all be in the notes of the episode. Wishing you a wonderful day in Ibiza.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Mel. This has been such a great a pleasure to be in con- conversation with you.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Possibility Podcast. I welcome your feedback on this and any episode. Please send me an email at mel at com or leave a comment in the show notes for this episode at MelSchwartz.com. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment to rate and review the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews really help boost the visibility for the show, and it's a great way for you to show your support. Finally, please make sure to subscribe to The Possibility Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and that way you'll never miss an episode. Thanks again, and please remember to always welcome uncertainty into your life and embrace new possibilities.